The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash, and on today's episode, we're talking about the Zero Footprint Baby. It's a book by Kea Chatterjee, and Kea is joining us today all the way from Washington, D.C. Kea, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. You are the author of this wonderful book that I just read. Also, you have what I would call a green job. Yeah, so I run something called the U.S. Climate Action Network. We are a network of 100 and almost 70 organizations that work on climate action, to advocate for action on climate change and to advocate a vision of the world that we want to see happen, where we meet the global goals of the Paris Climate Agreement and exceed the targets that were put forward by the U.S. before. So we have faith groups and youth groups and economic justice groups and, of course, environmental groups as well. But it's a really dynamic and compelling group of people who have dedicated their lives to making sure that we all have food and water and shelter and a stable climate that can provide those things. Was it your job that got you interested in environmentalism or were you always interested in this sort of thing? I've had a few moments in my life that made me more interested. One was when I was working at NASA and I realized just how bad the situation was and how much Arctic sea ice we were losing and how much more it was than I had learned in grad school would be happening. And another was in the same job when I realized that ExxonMobil, former ExxonMobil lobbyists were editing all of the science documents that we were created. And that's what led me to leave my research climate science job and come into the advocacy community and get connected with the U.S. Climate Action Network. And there's actually a climate action network in Canada as well that we work very closely with. And that really led me to realize how much we need to escalate what we're doing. And then I would say, finally, of course, the thing that really catapulted my interest and my desire to do something was being pregnant. You know, I can remember being pregnant and reading papers about the way the world might be in 2050 and that half of the people on the planet would be exposed to deadly heat stress if we didn't do anything. And not to mention heavy downpours and larger wildfires and all of the ways that we've just seen in the last year, uh, devastation come across this continent, you know, it's all been written in papers for a long time. And 2050 is this number that pops out all the time. And I was sitting there about to have a baby in 2010 and just thinking, oh, my baby is going to be 40 years old at the date that this is talking about. And it just made it so much more tangible. So I would say it was a combination of my work, but a lot of it was just becoming a mom that made me really want to ramp it up and do a lot of the research that went into writing this book, because this is basically me just doing research on my own because I couldn't find it anywhere else. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, this is not available anywhere else. I might as well just publish it and put it out in case there are other people interested. 
Well, thank you for doing that. So I want to jump sort of right into the book. In the first few chapters, you mentioned you read a book yourself that said that the average person should be spending about $7,000 US on having a baby in the first year. And that to me was crazy. That really stuck out because I only spent a few hundred dollars in my first year. In Canada, we have a year of maternity leave, so I didn't have to pay any daycare. And then also, I got everything sort of used in second hand. There were only a couple things that I bought new. So I was wondering, do you remember sort of roughly how much you did spend in your first year of your baby's life? Yeah, we didn't calculate it, but actually it turns out that a carbon footprint is a a bit of a proxy. (laughs) My guess is that the net was actually zero because we didn't buy anything new like you. We actually reduced our travel quite a bit just because it's really a pain to travel with a newborn and we were much happier staying at home (laughs) for those months. And we were being very, very conscientious with our carbon footprint, which meant our expenses we were being very conscientious with. I'm very lucky our parents are close by, but I still did have some childcare expenses with nanny shares just when parents couldn't cover it. But my guess is we were also in the hundreds and not even up to a thousand, even with that. You did mention that it isn't very important to have those grandparents with you or, or close to you. And I felt the same way. My mom was working at the same time and we thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a grandparent leave? It's a great idea. I love it. And and what we see in a lot of countries is that multi-generational living is still quite prevalent and popular. And the reality is that actually results in a much lower carbon footprint because you have more people in a smaller space, but actually people are living in ways that not only are saving them money because of childcare, but also where a lot of the work of childcare is shared among generations. And you're also sharing a space. So that's less space to heat, less space to cool in the summer, which means a more sustainable way of living. Mm-hmm. And having those grandparents and that extended knowledge, sometimes they'll have 60, 70, 80 years of knowledge behind them to pass on. Yep. And some of those things are so valuable. Like I always wonder, what did we do before plastic? And some of those grandparents have those answers, which is great. Yep. You went on to talk about breastfeeding and formula. I was so lucky that I was able to breastfeed my son for a year. So we didn't have any expense or I suppose carbon footprint really in that area. But I know for a lot of moms, it isn't possible. So you do give some tips on formula. I also was very lucky, I should say. Certainly, there are people for whom that's not an option. And so I wanted to do some research into what the options are and what the different variables are. And from a carbon footprint perspective, and this is also true from a packaging perspective, one of the things that ended up being really important was just making sure that you were reducing packaging by getting powdered forms of things so you're not transporting all of that liquid and you're actually then having a lot more formula in a smaller container. Absolutely. You see the same thing with detergent, especially laundry detergent, because you're paying for water. And if you just buy the powdered, then you're getting a much better value and it's better for the environment. It usually comes in paper. I'm really glad that you put that part in that, yes, breastfeeding is zero waste and it's low carbon footprint, but also people need formula. And then once children are old enough to eat solid foods, you had some pretty cool tips to reduce our food waste. And this was also like from a carbon footprint standpoint and from a zero waste standpoint. Yeah. The thing is that food waste is a massive, massive, massive problem. We throw away somewhere between, you know, a third and half of the food that we eat. And so I found that like right after my son was born was a great time to just get into some habits. I was going back to work, so I was pumping breast milk. And I just got in the habit of always being very fastidious of writing the date, whether I was putting it in the fridge or the freezer. And I just 
extended that habit to starting to write the date. You know, it just washes right off if you write it in marker on glassware. Just writing the date of when I put things in the fridge, and that way it's just a really good reminder to actually eat it. You know, and other little things like only putting on the plate what you think the baby's going to definitely eat. So you don't end up throwing more away. And as my son's gotten older, you know, it's been really important just to let him serve himself and what he thinks he's going to eat so that he's much less more likely to actually eat it. Absolutely. Of course, eating the leftovers is a key part of it. And then you can't do all that, I say, at least have a backyard compost. Yes, that's very good advice. I like that you mentioned to let the child regulate how much it needs to eat. I find that both of our countries have problems with obesity, and sometimes I see parents saying, you must finish your plate, or you must drink this whole glass of milk. And I think, well, what if they don't need it? So I want to talk about diapers. The zero waste crowd and the zero carbon footprint crowd are mostly aligned. But I feel like with the diapers, this is sort of where we diverge. So zero waste is absolutely cloth diapers. And this was a huge thing for me because I didn't want my son having a three-bedroom household-sized pile of diapers sitting in a landfill when his great-grandkids are around. So that was my choice for using cloth. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your argument that cloth diapers might not be the best from a zero-carbon footprint standpoint. From a zero-carbon footprint standpoint, cloth diapers are definitely the best to be clear. But the thing that I found is that when you use cloth diapers, you can control your carbon footprint. It can be high and it can be low. When you use disposable diapers, you cannot control it. The pollution is coming from the manufacturing of that diaper. And as you were just talking about, the lack of an ability to dispose of it in any sustainable way, it's a locked in amount. Whereas with a cloth diaper, you really have a lot of control as an individual. You can get them used. You can choose to have solar panels on your home or buy renewable energy from the grid so that the washing machine is being run on renewable energy. You can choose to wash in cold water. You can choose to not use an electric dryer, which is a huge source of pollution just because of the the amount of energy it takes to run a clothes dryer. If you want to get to zero, you want to be cloth and you want to do all of these things that are going to reduce the footprint. So there's no question if you want to get to zero, Cloth is the way to go, but it's not just cloth. If you're doing cloth and using an electric dryer and buying all new cloth diapers all the time and washing in hot water and washing three cycles to make sure they're super clean, you can make it worse than a disposable diaper. And so I guess I was just trying to present the data that you actually could be worse off with cloth diapers if you weren't being careful, more as a way of saying that, like, I personally wanted to get to zero, So I'm not going to go with disposable diapers. I mean, I think like once uh, I ever put a disposable diaper on my baby because I was just also very opposed to the landfill piece of it. But also because from a carbon footprint perspective, I essentially eliminated any pollution coming from diapers by having used cloth diapers and line drying them you can line dry them or I have a rack in my basement so I'd put a rack up and I can dry things on there and it takes a little while because diapers are a thicker material but they will dry on their own and we actually had a little spray it was almost like a bidet but like a handheld one and we just hooked it up to the back of our toilet and then would spray solids off and then we put them in a bin with a charcoal filter like those ones that go in fish tanks so we cut a little hole in the top of the plastic bin lid and put that there and then our room didn't even smell And we could pile up like 10 or 12 or 15 diapers. We would pile them up and then just wash them with one cycle with soap nuts. 
and then yep. dry them. We did use a dryer a little bit, but when I think back to it, we probably didn't have to as much as we did. It's interesting to see these different views. Like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to reduce waste? Or are you trying to reduce your carbon footprint? When I was done with mine, they were in such good shape that I sold them. It's amazing how they retain their value, huh? That yeah. was what amazing. And we had the same experience with Pate Frank. We washed up the solids, washed them in loads all together. And there are different kinds of cloth diapers. So I will say for line drying, it is really good to get the kind where you can take the insert out and let them dry separately because it dries a little bit faster. Because we also generally ended up drying inside because of weather stuff. Mm-hmm. You actually had this answer to all of this. So really to get everything down to zero was elimination communication. And this is something I never really heard of before. So it was really cool to read about this. I was sort of like wide-eyed <laughs> reading this chapter. Like, what? <laughs> what is this? Yeah, I was amazed when I found this. This gets back to the beginning of our conversation where we were saying that Previous generations can tell us a lot about how parenting happened without plastic. You know, our species has existed for a while before plastic. And one of the things that I learned is that even now in India, um, where my family is from, most people don't use disposable diapers or cloth diapers. They do something called elimination communication, which is that from birth, you can actually have a baby go in the toilet. And we did end up using cloth diapers quite a bit because, you know, we had childcare, we had other people taking care of the baby. But when I was home, I actually like from, and we have uh, probably a ridiculous amount of video of this because I just thought it was so amazing that I would just take our son to the toilet even when he was a newborn. Because, you know, he would just, he would pretty reliably go to the bathroom in like 20 minutes after nursing. He'd get a look on his face and I'd be like, oh, let's go to the <laughs> toilet. And it actually works so much better than you might imagine. And people don't believe it. And then I would say around one, my son actually had a potty strike. And so we had a period in there where it just would not use the toilet, but then went back to it really quickly. It actually really helped with having an earlier potty training timetable. That's amazing. My mother, she used to tell me that babies used to be like way back in the day potty trained at two and now they're more typically expected to be trained at three and and this is my mom talking but she said it's because of disposable diapers babies can tell when they're wet with cloth but with the new technology of new disposable diapers it's meant to wick moisture away so when an infant goes to the bathroom it kind of absorbs into that chemical gel and then the babies don't know as much so my mother says that it does take a lot longer to train if the babies never know. So my son was totally potty trained at two. We would put some cloth diapers on him at night because obviously he would maybe have some accidents at night. But he was wearing underwear when he was two. Yep. He just learned and they don't like to be wet. I found that really helpful. Then you're saving on the cost of an extra year of all those diapers, which is really, really great. Let's face it, it's annoying to have to deal with diapers. And if you don't have to, it just makes everyone's life so much easier if they can go to the bathroom by themselves. Absolutely. You were sort of calculating the carbon footprint of bringing a child into this world for the first year. I was wondering if you could just sort of explain briefly how you did that. You know, your carbon footprint is how much carbon pollution you're making. And so basically you're making that, that the big areas where you're making that are your home, the way you're getting around, and the things that you're consuming. So that includes materials. We were just talking about diapers. It includes food. And then there's some amount of pollution 
that's probably attributed to you because of what's around you. So like your government is doing some stuff that creates some pollution on your behalf, like filtering out your water. Your government has a share of emissions that you could attribute to you by percentage, and your workplace has a share. And so that's all the pollution you're creating. And then you take away from that the pollution you're taking out of the air. So you might be planting trees or something that is really tangible to people that takes CO2 out of the air and removes pollution from the air, recycling or composting materials that would otherwise be breaking down in a landfill in a way that creates a lot of pollution, you know, maybe generating more renewable energy than you're using in your house. So it's actually going to others or maybe getting other people. Baby's carbon footprint is highly reliant on what their parents are doing. Mm -hmm. So basically, all I was trying to figure out is how much additional pollution are we creating from our baby being in the house? And how much are we removing because we're being really careful and we've done all this research and we're doing everything we can do? And can we make that equation add up to zero so that we're actually removing as much pollution as we might be putting in just because of everyday things like eating a little bit more food while you're nursing or things like that? Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many factors. That's what I find kind of complicated. You actually kind of put numbers on it. Yeah, I calculated everything, you know, the same way a lot of people keep like a very tight financial budget for their house. We calculated everything. And the biggies really are transportation and your home and your consumption. And so if you're not consuming that much and you're only buying used things and you're trying to buy food that's available around you seasonally and locally, like if you're being careful with that stuff anyway, then then it's not terribly complicated to calculate that. Of course, if you're buying something off of Amazon every three hours, it becomes hard to track everything that you bought. But, you know, we could reduce things enough so that it actually wasn't that hard to calculate what the additional pollution was. And then we were able to calculate how much we were able to get, get solar panels and figure out how much excess we were producing and start a garden and do more composting and getting our neighbors to come and, and calculate all of that and just make sure that we felt like we were staying in balance as a family. That's awesome. Transportation emissions end up being pretty big. These things all come together in terms of a concept of living more simply. And I think in the zero waste world, people get this. Like it was never paper or plastic. They used to ask that question as though obviously one of those was the answer at the grocery store. You get to the front of the line, paper or plastic, paper or plastic. And that doesn't happen anymore. People now understand like, well, neither. Like bring your own bag. And, well, I mean, I'm sure it does happen in places. It doesn't, it doesn't happen where I live in Washington, D.C., because a law was passed basically saying that you had to charge for plastic bags and paper bags. But I think that, that as we realize what it takes to live within the bounds of what this planet can support, we'll realize more and more that the simple answer is the one that makes the most sense. If you can, like, walk or bike or get on foot or, you know, an electric car that runs on renewable energy somehow to get the things you need and also get the things without packaging, like that's what needs to become available to everybody. And it's not today. And that's because of larger, powerful political structures. This is not about individuals choosing to do the right thing all the time. A lot of the time, it gets back to my story about ExxonMobil being in the White House. It's because companies have encouraged and funded politicians to fund infrastructure and a surrounding that makes it really hard for us to live the way we want to live and live simply. And so we have to get this done both through political action and through our own actions. And eventually, it's the good option will be available to all of us because we've engaged in our democracy and forced that to be the options in front of us. 
Absolutely. I love the activism part of all of this that you're really into. And I won't get too much into it. I will encourage people to actually read the book if they want to find out more. But Kaya actually went to a protest in a wheelchair because she was so new to just having her baby that she could barely walk and she still attended this protest. I'll let listeners, you know, read the book to find out what happened. But I think that's the next step. Once we get our own lives organized so that we can reduce our waste, then we can kind of go step two and try and encourage other people to do it, but also on a political level. Like I say almost every podcast episode that it's probably going to come down to some more regulation because it's just the best way to get people to listen. And we did an episode about Tybee Island trying to ban plastic bags and a bunch of lobbyists came in and blocked it. So you're right, like there are these sort of powers that are, are really fighting against us helping the planet, which is really frustrating to see. And I'm really happy to hear that you mentioned Washington, D.C. is now charging people for plastic bags or paper bags. I think that's a positive step in the right direction is to charge for those bags. Those things have to have a price on them because they have such a big price yeah. on the environment. Absolutely. Exactly. There was actually a couple interesting facts that I read. So one was that the cotton in onesies for a baby costs about 130 pounds of CO2. That's crazy. Like that's one onesie, right? Yeah. And the thing is that there is just so much available around us that we don't use. And so there's just more than enough baby clothes in North America for all babies to be clothed. They already exist. Nobody needs to pick one more bit of cotton. We can do a much better job of reusing what we've already got and recycling fabrics. It is shocking how much society tells new mothers and new parents in general and advertising subjects to new parents this gift-giving culture around new babies and that new things must be purchased and given. And I really understand the desire to give these things, but also there are plenty of onesies out there. So what we did for our baby shower was I just said, use things only, please. And people were very creative. You know, they went to the vintage shop. You want to meet people's desire to give, but also there's just so much waste involved in making new things. And the baby really doesn't care, right? What no. they're wearing. And onesies are so cute that are used. It's not like they're getting cuter or better. And in fact, they might even be getting worse in terms of toxicity and their impact on the environment. And, you know, people who make them overseas are maybe not getting paid what they should be or they're working long hours. You know, they're probably not part of a union. Like there's all these implications about buying new. And it comes with toys as well. So another interesting fact that I read that was a little bit shocking, 4% of the world's children are American but they own 40% of the world's toys. How did you sort of manage that aspect? I mean, we have some toys. A lot of them are toys that, you know, with stuffed animals, they're generally the stuffed animals I had. So we only allow you things. And then I'm a big believer in simplicity benefiting everybody. You know, as much as possible, we just we limit screen time. And that means that like sticks and rocks and leaves and cardboard boxes and string and yarn and yeah even dirt helping cook and using spoons and those are all the toys that I felt like my son ever needed and it really just makes life so much simpler not to have to store a bunch of stuff you don't need and most of this stuff is just totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. We had a bunch of Legos that we found at my parents' house that I had when I was little. I think I was about nine when I got them. And now my son, who's six, he's playing with them. And this has been 
20 years and they're still in perfect condition. Yeah. Like those things aren't going anywhere. Yeah. We also have Legos that are that old and A, they last and B, I don't want to be a commercial for Legos or anything, but they actually, it's one of the few companies that has a commitment to making their, their materials with a hundred percent wind energy. And they proactively are thinking about the materials behind that and thinking about how to get off of petroleum. They're not there yet, but they do last a really long time. I mean, all our Legos we have in our house are also from the era of my childhood. That's awesome. And the books still last as well. Like I have all the instruction books so we can build that together. There's a website and a company that actually allows you to rent Legos. And if you're actually in the mood to build the item in the instructions and get something like Star Wars, Millennium Falcon or something, they would send one to you and you build it and then you mail it back when you're done and they send you the next one. So we made an Eiffel Tower and a Millennial Falcon and a bunch of things that way that we didn't then have to keep in our house and find a place to put it, but we could just mail back so the next kid could enjoy it. I love that idea so much. I'm wondering if you sort of have any advice for that difficult conversation for our listeners who are maybe expecting and they're having a baby shower. Like, is there anything you can sort of tell them to give them hope that they can maybe have that talk with their relatives and say, hey, we're we're not into new stuff. We're kind of looking for you stuff. Yeah, it's not easy and it takes time and it doesn't stick the first time in my experience. And so you have to repeat it. But, you know, we put it right on the invitation. We said, this is a celebration of life and sustainability. And we would really, really love pre-loved items. And we realized it takes more time and would appreciate anything you could find. I mean, another thing you can do is provide an option for something that they can get that actually allows you to be more sustainable. If you have incandescent bulbs that are using a ton of electricity, you can say, you know, I generally don't want new things, but if they're going to like improve the planet for my kid, you could get these LED bulbs or you could, you know, provide a couple options for people who just can't get their minds around the used item things. And the other thing I say is 100% recycled. So sometimes you can find 100% recycled toys, um, particularly like upcycled toys where people have taken bits and pieces bobs of, of fabrics and other toys and made them into really beautiful things. And I've had family members really wanted to buy me things, find upcycled musical instruments for babies and things like that. And so I would say ask right in the invitation and then give people some other some options. Yeah, that's some good advice because I, I find those conversations very tricky when people just don't get it because it's a tough topic to breach. It really is. I'm wondering sort of if you have any advice or like things that you learned since writing the book. Yeah, I think that with each Stage. So my son's also my, my son's seven, so around the same age as yours. And I think at each stage, it's been really, really important still, as I say in the book, to have a sense of community around me and around us where people are supportive of what we're trying to do and be willing to do things a little bit differently. So I'll say here in Washington, D.C., you know, at the beginning, I was probably one of the few parents in D.C. that was riding a bicycle with my son and with my baby and biking back as fast as I could with my pump milk from work in the first year, but also biking with my baby, you know, in older years, and then him riding on his own bike starting when he was four. And just like 
cloth diapering or sometimes even breastfeeding or having a baby shower with no new things. Some of these things seem really unusual to people. So it's so important to have a sense of community around who can support you in making the lifestyle choices you want to make and celebrate the little wins with you and try and do things together. It's so much more fun doing things with a friend. As my son's gotten older, that's become more and more important. And then, of course, fun thing with age is that you can start to enlist your baby in help and and doing a lot of the things that we're talking about, composting and gardening and thinking about waste. So I have actually found that it's gotten a lot more fun in a lot of ways, but I've loved every stage of having a baby. Today I'll be riding with my son's violin on my back and getting into violin class with a little bit of weather outside, but we'll make it. And we've seen more and more people kind of watching us and doing the same. You know, when we started biking to school, we were the only bike on the rack in the winter, and now now it's full. I wonder if you're having the same problem as me, though, with pants, because my son loves to play with, like, cars and trucks, and he's building Legos and doing all these things on his knees, and so he's burning through his knees and his pants. (laughs) I take it you're having that issue, too. Oh, my gosh. I don't think he has a single pair of pants that doesn't have a hole in the knee. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like these are the first kids in the world to be running around and being active and getting holes in their pants. Why are pants not made with reinforcement in the knees? Right now we're in a place where, you know, I don't know a solution other than patching them and getting another used pair and trying to put in reinforcement ourselves. But as you do this and you try to live more sustainably and simply, you start finding these little issues. And definitely, I agree with you, holes in the knees. I do sometimes wonder what other parents think of me. Well, that last piece just reminded me, make really good friends with somebody who has a baby who's a little bit younger and someone who has a baby who's a little bit older. Yes. That you always can pass things in both directions. Absolutely. Yeah, it's key because they will give you everything. And that's key, too, if you want to be on a budget. The Zero Footprint Baby, it was a wonderful read. I'm very happy to speak with you today, Kaya. Thank you so much for taking time out of your amazing green job. And I wish you the very best in your activism. And thank you for doing that because we need more people like you who are doing that activism part. It's one thing to do it in our own homes, but then when you really take it out to the public, that is really the next step. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing this podcast. So great. Oh, thank you. I'm hoping that it helps because they're all really good conversations to have. This week on My Countdown to Zero Waste, my son and I made bread from ingredients purchased zero waste. We eat at least one loaf of bread per week, which means by making our own zero waste bread at home, we'll be saving around 50 plastic bags a year. Over the next 10 years, by the time my son is 16, we will have avoided nearly 500 plastic bread bags and nearly 500 non-recyclable plastic bread ties that would have ended up in landfill. This week's episode was recorded in the 91XFM studios at Loyalist College in Belleville, Ontario. If you like our show, you can follow me on Instagram at Zero Waste Countdown. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you have any questions or ideas for the show, you can email me, laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.